Believe It, episode number seven of our third season of Behind the Buzz, a public fit theater company's occasional podcast where we chat up the folks who are involved with putting together the processes that create the productions that make up the seasons of our growing resume of plays and staged readings. I'm Joe Coogan, APF's producing director, and I'm joined, as always, by artistic director Anne-Marie Perrette. Hi there. And I hinted about this the last time we chatted, and it all uh, fell into place. So today, we are extremely excited to continue the conversation with Audrey Cephali, the author of the final show of our ninth season, the remarkably beautiful Alabaster. Before we get into that, A.M., do you want to just, just share with us really quick uh, why you felt so drawn to this play and why you had to include it in the season? And keep in mind, Audrey's right here. She's, she's listening to everything you say. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, every time I describe this play, just like in, in sound bites, I'm like, yeah, it's about two lesbians and two goats. And people are like, what? <laughs> uh, um, but it's really... Uh, more than just that um it's a play uh about love and i'm always up for a good love story and it's a play about trauma and no matter who you are on this planet you have some sort of difficult situation that you've been through and i think that that is highly personal for a lot of women and also very universal at the same time um we also were on a trip um in 2021, where we were watching the news a lot, and yeah. there was that uh, tornado, and I think it was Evansville, Illinois, and then I came in contact with your play about six months later, and I thought, wow, this is so relevant because you know climate change is is a, a big thing on my radar. So even though it's not a play about climate change, it is uh, in a in a subtle way. Felt so like kismet. Yeah, I felt that that. Uh, was appealing and then lastly um, when we before we read the play um, or before we put the play in our season uh, we usually sit around this library that you see me in um, over this um, phone call and we read the play and I actually played the role of June and the reason why I decided even though I'm not much of an actor uh, I have all of these acne scars on my face and so the scarring in in the play um was really, really personal for me uh, because uh, my scars are very external and I've had to deal with that my whole life. And I think a lot of women's scars can be external or internal. And so that's why the play on a personal level really resonated with me. I can see her chomping at the bit. So let me make it official. I'm going to read this intro. I spent three and a half hours writing this intro, so I, I got to get it out there. Let's make it official. Audrey... Cephali is a Southern playwright focused on character-driven stories set almost exclusively in her home state of Alabama. I admit I stole that from your artistic statement. Uh, she is the recipient of the 2018 Lambda Literary Award, the 2017 David Calacaccio Emerging American Playwright Prize, the 2017 Charles MacArthur Award for Outstanding Original Play, and the 2015 Edgerton New American Play Award. And in 2020, Audrey... You were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Besides Alabaster, her plays include The Gulf, uh, a musical called The Last Wide Open, uh, Tell Me Something Good, <laughs> this is my favorite title, Love is a Blue Tick Dog, and Maytag Virgin. Her latest play, Trouble, just premiered at Florida Rep. Audrey, thank you so much for meeting up with us. Uh, I listed a bunch of plays. I got most of that, right? Yeah, most of that's true, yeah? 
the Charles MacArthur, I was nominated for. Um, See, I would have given it to you. But, but that's pretty close. <laughs> okay, good. Well, am I right to think with all these plays that I've written, am I right to think that you're also a prolific prose writer as well? Um, not prose, but the, but I do skirt between, uh, I, d I do sort of skitter between genres. Sometimes things evolve out of prose or lyrical things that I've put here and there. And it, so sometimes things evolve differently. Like my play, um, The Story of Walter, uh, started out as a podcast during just before the pandemic. And then I decided to make it into a play. And it may still end up being a novel. I don't know. Oh, I don't like to be boxed into form. I like to experiment with what things could be. Because sometimes uh, it's not supposed to be a play. It's supposed to be something else. So you would say you're a writer and sort of leave it that and leave it open-ended? I think so. I come from writers. My mother is a playwright. Um, she writes every day. I do not write every day. Uh, it seems like everyone in my family is a writer of some kind. Charlene Reddick, your mom, a playwright, and then your grandma was studied acting before she became a nurse. Is that right? Is there such a thing as theater in the blood? Yes, I think so. Um, and it's interesting because when, when I went to high school, my mother said that I had to take drama. And I said, that sounds lame. I'm going to take typing. <laughs> <laughs> Typing drama. <laughs> no, that's fair. The only the only thing I took away from high fun. school I when I went drama. to high school, the only thing I really learned, quote unquote, in high school was how to type. I think I think I think she's right. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I eventually did take typing as well, but um, that first year she made me. She goes, "You just have to try it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But you do have to try it." And what she knew was that there's this wonderful, legendary uh, teacher there. Um who I still keep in contact with, Bobby Gamble. She's 90, I think she's 96 years old now, and she's so proud of me. Um, oh, I'll bet. But my dramaturg and I actually met just before that, Carolyn Messina, um, and we took drama together, and then we just had a sort of a lifelong collaborative, you know, friendship. And uh, uh, that's when I learned that, you know, I should be doing this. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't know that I would be a playwright. Of course, most kids are not exposed to playwriting in high school. Yeah. Maybe now, now more so for sure. But back Maybe then, playwrights, but I don't know about playwriting. I think that that's a lot. I don't, I don't know that that's part of anyone's no, I, curriculum I, beyond drama. I, I teach a, a course, at, uh, a 400 level course at um, the college level. And I get a lot of psych majors, anthropology majors and most of the time, they're seniors in college, and they have not read a play. Well, you know, yeah. Or sometimes wow. even seen a college? play, but reading is a yeah. whole different. That's a whole different animal. Ain't yeah, college. Yeah, wow. that's amazing. Well, we're out here in the wilds of Las Vegas. You're in the in Alabama, where things are probably more. Um... Mm -hmm. Well, we were very <laughs> excited in high school because um, Beth Henley won the Pulitzer right around that time. Oh yeah, and she was my first love as a playwright, and so. You know, we were exposed to that at the age of 16 years old, you know, and um, for that, for us, that was, a you know, in, in central Alabama, that was kind of a racy play to be doing. Mm -hmm. Now it seems so benign, but, you know, there was lots of stuff in there that we had to kind of like, well, how do we navigate this? It's crimes um, of the heart, right? You're talking about crimes of the heart. Crimes of the heart, right. Can I, and, am, I am I right in thinking that the acceptance of and kind of hunger uh, for female 
playwrights has come a long way since since Beth Henley and like Marsha and Norman. I'm thinking, you know, Heidi, Heidi Wasserstein and 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 uh, uh, or Wendy Wasserstein, the Heidi Chronicles and all that stuff. Or is that a dumb old white guy perspective? I don't know how to. I'm not sure I know how to answer that question as posed just there. In the class that that I teach on the college level, we examine how many women have been nominated for Pulitzers in the in the. 80s, 90s, 2000, 210s, and two, uh, and now in the current decade that we're in. And each decade, the amount of women that are nominated increases more. And if you look at the panel of judges in previous time periods, the panel, like in the 70s and the 60s, were, were made up of mostly um, mostly men, and there wasn't any sort of diversity or representation on that panel. But as we head into our time period, that that has changed completely. There's people of all different um, colors and men and women um, on, on that panel. And so now more women are being nominated, and therefore, because more women are being nominated, more women are being produced. And so, yeah, I think... And I think... We live in a culture now, a society that is hunkering for that female perspective and that, and that story to be told. Even like what we mentioned, why I chose this play uh, for the season, I, I think it's highly personal that, that there's a space where women can come and see something on stage that is very similar to their own experience. For me personally, I know that I do write a lot of plays with strong female characters, but... I also will tell anyone who will listen that it's not that I have a, a uh, it's not that I have a partiality to women's stories. It's just it's just that I know that material. But 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 the material is also just about our humanity. And so when I draw male characters, I try to approach that from the same from this this the same sort of place, which is what are your deepest fears? What are you most anxious about? What, what's causing you the most pain right now? Um, and so I try to just go really deep um, with male and female characters. Um, and I have been told over the years, you know, we need your voice, Audrey, that your, your female characters are so wonderful. And sometimes when I write male characters, sometimes gently and sometimes not so gently told, you know, go back in this lane where we want you to be in. And I'm just, yeah. I just, I feel like that's such a disservice to writers. Anytime you, you say to them, stick with the thing that you're good at, which in this case is, is analogous to who I am actually identify as a human being no woman wants to be told to stay in her lane so why would women um say to people that are different than them um we want you to stay in their lane it seems like we would be hypocritical they they want me to continue creating content and i and i and i will and i appreciate that um but i also see that there are a lot of damaged broken male characters that need a voice too. If I can do that in a way that feels honest and tender, mm-hmm. um, then I feel like that is adding to the to the feminine side of the canon. Mm-hmm. Just because it's a male character doesn't mean that he's not capable of, you know, some of the pathos, some of the deep longing, you know, that I write in my female characters. And so I go there too. 
Can I ask you, you th- I, there's a quote of yours, and this is, I think, in line with what you're saying. You're quoted as saying, um, in my work, I start with the audience in mind. And this kind of sounds like what you're talking about. Can you explain that quote to me? How do you start with an audience in mind? And is it the audience writ large or a specific audience or a Southern audience or an audience of you know gentrified folk? What What's the thought process that goes into starting with the audience so just before we started recording you we were chatting a bit about craig wright and i remember um saying um my experience watching one of his plays for the first time pavilion in shepherdstown and just feeling emotionally wrecked and i think whenever anybody asks me what what are my favorite plays i will always mention the pavilion that's how if if I'm doing my job, how I want audiences to feel when they're experiencing my narratives. Can I plumb the depths of emotion? Can I get so deep with the character work and the subtext um, and what's really going on in the interior worlds of these characters that the audience really sort of has to relent to go along to this territory that I'm always sort of looking for. Now you say, well, is that an arrogant sort of viewpoint to say, well, I'm going to want you to feel something. Um, I don't, I wouldn't call it that. I would say that if we're not, the kind of theater I want to create is of that emotional landscape. I'm not out there writing stories that are about our political world, you know, um, allegorical tales of, you know, uh, our socioeconomical, you know, landscape. I'm not doing adaptations. What I'm doing is creating characters from scratch who are really fraught. And I think when you focus on that kind of material, people are just going to automatically kind of see something in themselves in it because you're trafficking in so many universal truths which is, I feel alone, I feel forgotten, I feel angry, I feel um, that maybe I've run out of chances in life. This is why I write love stories, because far too many of us find ourselves at the crossroads, physically exhausted, emotionally and spiritually bereft, believing we are undesirable, unlovable, unfuckable, that we will never get it back, whatever it is, and that we have run out of chances. The rejection of that fallacy is the root of every love story ever told. Life is not done with you yet. Don't believe the hype. That's one of yours. Wow, that was well said. That's yeah, that's one of it's not me. That's 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 an Audrey Suffley original right there. I I don't just mean falling in love stories, Chekhovian love stories. I mean family. I would consider August Osage County a love story. I don't know if other people would, but I do. That's generational trauma. Mm -hmm. The pairing of a couple that are, that are really struggling. They're really struggling. And the backdrop is this family drama. But, but if you really break it down and that play used to intimidate me until I realized it's really just a series of, you know, scenes with almost, you know, little two-handers throughout. There's some that have three, mm-hmm. but it's it's like, well, what are you going to do? Life is sometimes, and I think plays are too, character studies. What are you going to do about that one other person? Whether it's your, your parent or your child or your wife. And I have found that when I juxtapose a character and that one other person, we can get really deep, really quick, even in short pieces, um, with, with what I find really exciting, which is 
humanity, which is our shared humanity, um, which I think is so present in, in all, of our, all of our plays, but particularly in Alabaster. Maybe the best example of how intricately connected we are, because in Alabaster, you have a series of events that happens. And I'm not going to say that it's a plot-driven play, although you could break it down that way, where um, there's a domino effect. If one thing happen, one thing needs to occur in order for our protagonist to move forward. And um, it's not what you think it is. Yeah. You think it is that June needs to leave the house that she's been stuck in for three years, but that's not it. What right. needs to happen is, and I don't think I'm giving too much away, it's pretty well, much a well-known fact, that Mother Bib, the mother goat, is very sick. Okay. Yeah. What's going to happen with Mother Goat? Well, Wheezy lays it out. Her daughter Wheezy lays it out. She says, when my mother dies, I'm out of here, June. I'm not going to keep taking care of you. I'm done taking care of you. I don't want to be burdened anymore. I'm I'm tired of it. I need time for me now. I'm going to go do goat things. Why do you eat the okra? I give you carrots. This isn't about the okra. And I don't like carrots. You're a goat. Goats eat everything. I like her. She's not afraid. Stop. Go do your goat thing. Really? Goat thing? All, everything is set in motion for the next character to do what they need to do, the next character to do, to do what they need to do. Um, and I just think it's interesting how intricately tied we are as humans because when one person pulls out of a toxic situation, everything starts to to compress, to fall in, to falter, right? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, when we have escaped, whatever that is, escaped is, it's a word. It's, a, it's not the, the best word, but it's a word. Whether it's a toxic job, a toxic relationship, um, a dead-end marriage. Maybe it's not toxic. Maybe it's just there's nothing going on, okay? Um, even when our children leave the nest, okay? They grow up and they leave the nest. Who are we now without that thing that was so much a part of our identity for so long that we no longer know where we begin and it ends? Mm -hmm. We say, well, I'm a mother. I'll always be a mother. Okay, but let's go a little deeper. What are you before you, before you're, you're, a, a you're a human, mm -hmm. you're human, you're probably a woman, not always, but you're probably a woman, you know? And um, you're, you're, you, 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 you have this child in a relationship so that, that there's a dynamic there too. What are you? When you extricate yourself from a situation, either by default, on purpose, um, you have to then take stock of who you are without that other thing. And I believe that that is the most supreme form of self-love that we're afforded in life is a moment to breathe and say, okay, well, who am I now? What do I do now? I wanted to ask you a question based on that uh, explanation because I was talking about it uh, with the crew here prior. And um, when Bib dies and she's removed from that situation and then uh, Wheezy comes and, and, and says that she's out, um, you talked about, you mentioned the word time, just kind of, do you th and because the goats 
I, I'm wait. sorry. I have to jump in just really quickly. Wait, wait, wait. Now, okay. You said goats and she said mother goats. I have to explain to our audience who hasn't <laughs> seen this play yet right, that we explain. were talking about literal goats. goats. The first moment of the play yeah. is an actor on stage saying, my name is Wheezy. I am a goat. I am aware that I am a goat. I am a talking goat. And we accept that, and they are. We're not talking about Mama Goat as some sort of metaphoric uh, name that she true? calls herself. They are literal goats. They're they're portraying goats on stage. I'm done. Carry on. Right. And and am, am I going too far in suggesting that the goats are, uh, especially Wheezy, is like omnipresent, all knowing, all seeing. Right. Yeah. So when when. When the mama goat, uh, Bib, she she passes and Wheezy removes herself, is that a accidental thing in your in your in your writing, or is that an intentional thing based on the world of the play? Because sometimes events happen to us, and then sometimes events are intentional, and that that's just a question I have about about the world of the play and like the structure of how that world works. Probably I would have answered this question very differently in the early days of writing it. But my dramaturg and I began to understand that Wheezy exists on so many levels. She's literally a goat, but she also takes human form. And we also understand by the end of the play that she's some sort of sort of wise goat Yoda. You say, well, when does Yoda leave when he does? It's like asking Yoda, how do you know when to leave Yoda? Was that part of the design? Or if you understand that Yoda is the president. I don't know that I would ever made the connection of Alabaster and Star Wars. About the right time to go and all this kind of stuff. And and What's fascinating about the play to me is that that element of like that that supernatural or fantastical element. Uh, And that part of it sort of refuses to be defined. You can enjoy it on other levels, even if you never understand that there's this other higher instrument of the divine mm-hmm. situation going on with Wheezy. And so you say, well, there's a pl- practical consideration that even if she was a human, okay, let's let's take, for example, um, as an example, uh, just for the sake of argument, that all four of these characters are human, mm-hmm. right? And if she were human, and it's for me, it was useful to think of Wheezy as a human rather than a goat when I was writing her. Um, and she's been a caretaker all this time for not only June and her PTSD situation, but also um, her mother, Bib, okay, in these recent years as Bib has declined in age and, and in capacity and is, is basically in hospice. But even before that was the caretaker of this entire farm and is basically a scapegoat for everything that's ever gone horribly wrong on this farm. And so she carries the pain of everything awful that's ever happened uh, in this, in this world, in this universe, she's at capacity. Weezy's at capacity. And so as a human, she would be like, you know what, when mama dies, I'm, I need to go someplace else because everything dies here. She actually says that. You have to leave this place. Well, I'll just waltz right on out waltz, there walk until right I die out. with no oxygen, oh, until I'm God, so dramatic. Until I... Dying is dramatic. Yes, dying is dramatic. Mama died easy. Mama wasn't dramatic. She died in her fucking sleep. Okay, Bib is a goat. That's right, June. Bib is a goat. I'm no, not, not a, a goat. goat. What are you waiting for anyway? Blueprints? 
You're not angry at me. Oh, how the hell would you know? You can't hurt me. I'm standing. Wheezy. Everything dies here. But then you say, well, but she's a goat. Well, so what? <laughs> so what? Goats don't have feelings. Goats don't have aspirations. And you're like, okay, all right, so she's a goat. But if you think of it in human terms, it becomes very clear what's going on. Um, and then in the in the higher space, I mean, I, I, I think it was the higher space because hierarchically it's it's something even bigger than that, which is that she's sort of this sage, this this mystical creature who probably has devised a lot of what's going on today at this home, which the play takes place over a course of 24 hours. She probably made some of this happen, just like how Yoda made some things happen and Gandalf and all these other wonderful sage creatures from all the stories that we've loved over the years. They just kind of know how to make things happen. <laughs> You've opened up my mind now to like these sage-like characters, you know, that they give us so much, but they also need, you know, some rest and relaxation too. They also need to go to the spa and play a little tennis and, you know, just have yeah, a little me time. Don't present to us as tired, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're young. And Yoda, we don't know how old he is, thousands of years old at this point. You know, he's pretty old. Yeah, like he's what is Yoda doing <laughs> when he's not, you know, saving the world? <laughs> how many more, you know, young Jedis does he have to train so that until he's finally, you know, you know, they're always pulling him back in. What's that famous line? They're always pull, you know, always pulling <laughs> him back in. Um, and that's how I feel like Yoda is and all these other characters. It's like, I retired. There's always someone in one of these shows whether it's a Rocky show, a movie where like, they're all in retirement. They're already, and somebody gets them back in and they're like, one last hurrah, let's get the band back together. And he's like, I'm only doing this for you or the money. <laughs> that was something I had, took me a, a several years into the play before I understood that she, that Wheezy exists at that level. And when I understood that, other things began to happen because I understood that she was making things happen. In the world premiere at Florida Rep, I remember we were a few days away from preview and the directors, I said to the director, if we're to understand now that Wheezy is of the divine, and I'd been talking to my dramaturg about it, and Carolyn said, I sort of feel like, you know, she's causing some of these things to happen. Like suddenly something in a scene is revealed. Well, I always thought that it would just be, you know, Alice, the visitor photographer, she pulls back a tarp and there's some pictures there or something like that. Well, what if Wheezy is the one giving the Alice the idea to do that? I'm not talking about like shooting laser, you know, like, <laughs> not on a literal, like commanding her to do things, but you know, just breezily, you know how you can breezily walk past a person and suddenly they have an idea, you know, that sort of, that sort of um, device. Um, and so for the <clears throat> world premiere, I said to the director, Jason Parrish, I said, you know what, why don't we give Wheezy command of the whole stage? Just let, just let the actor just command the whole stage instead of her sitting over with her mother most of the time, which is what I had written originally in the script. I said, I think, I think at this point, what we know about Wheezy is she's in complete control. And if she really is all of those things, including narrator instrument of the divine 
let's have her just orchestrate the whole thing. It's difficult, though, because I don't want to limit mm-hmm. and I don't want to dictate, you know, and I also don't want it to come off as it's a nice, it's yeah. a fine line. I'm going to argue a little bit with you about your play. <laughs> no, I, I, I completely see that. And I, from, from me, from my reading of the play, it felt more um, control is a word I would, would stick on me a little bit just because of the way you've structured her exit and the way you've structured her awareness of, of uh, the needs of the humans in the play. And I would suggest that, at least from my perspective, and again, I'm arguing with the playwright about her play. It's a really bad habit, Audrey. I'm a I'm a it horrible is. human being. But don't mind um, it. <laughs> but I, but it seems to me like she's is one of those characters who just is aware of, understands, and uh, knows destiny, and is kind of aware of the way that things are going to flow because she has a very deep understanding of the way things must flow. That there's a destiny involved in all of these things that perhaps. Uh, an animal character, a goat character, is is just aware of and knows the progression of of. You mentioned time, the progression of time, the way destiny is going to take over uh, f- these two characters that we that we fall for. You know what I love that you said too um, about the world premiere and talking with your director. Just from a theatrical standpoint, if you give, if you take off some of those boundaries and allow her to have you know, free range of the whole world, it, it just creates more opportunity for uh, artistic theatrical moments on stage versus yeah. having her being planted in, in one place. And so that way, if like the, the director and the team really know that going into the process, who knows what could happen during, you know, those blocking rehearsals and, and those tech rehearsals. I was also going to say something about um, the interesting idea, um, maybe as a counterpoint, <laughs> is that, you know, there's a moment in the play where Wheezy is talking to June, which is not just talking to June. She's helping June imagine a better world. Yeah. Imagine something beautiful, right? Yeah. And June's like, I'm supposed to imagine something I've never imagined before. It's a beautiful scene. And so she takes June through this process she's like just close your eyes what do you see start with the ridge line start with something you know the ridge line in front of the house okay now let's move forward out of this dark place right <clears throat> these aren't the exact lines in the script but effectively she says every you know she's what she's trying to get across to june is every time you try to leave every time you try to get out of the situation that you're in which is this dark place is is this, this hermit life that you live this agoraphobia call it whatever you want. We never name it in the play, but we understand that she has not left this place in years. Mm -hmm. Um, Things go dark for you. You, 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 you say you run out of oxygen. You can get as far as the end of the the pasture and then it's outer space oxygen free. You you can't, you can't breathe. Right. She's so she tries to take June through this um, guided imagery thing where she's like, imagine something better, you know? Okay. When June's like, okay, well I'm there, I'm there. I see the pasture and I see, I see the markers and I see the, the lean to. And then she says, it gets, it's getting dark. It's dark. And Weezy says, just keep pushing, push, keep push through, push through, push through. June says, I can't, I can't, I can't. And eventually June is able to push through and see something beautiful. She can actually see something beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Wheezy, 
whether it says so in the script or not, here's the author telling you, <laughs> Wheezy has a vested interest in that beauty. She needs to know mm. that there's something out there for her too. Because remember, she's out. Mm. Her mother has just passed away. Yeah. She's out. And mm. this is her last task. Her last task is to grab a hold of June's hand and say, bitch, listen, I'm out. You need to get a hold of yourself. You and I both know this is not healthy for you. You're going to have to take this first step. You're going to have to imagine something better for yourself because until you imagine it, you're not going to be able to get there. And so as June sort of lifts herself out of this dark, she's got her eyes closed and she's imagining this world and she begins to see things that are beautiful, mountains, beautiful mountains. She thinks she's in a watercolor painting. Well, at that point, Wheezy is like, in rapture she's she's she even asks she says is it beautiful and june says oh it is right Wheezy mm -hmm. needs to know that the answer to that question is yes because otherwise what is her future right mm -hmm. and so i think that's sort of adjacent to the question about how much of this is preordained? How much how much of this does Wheezy know in advance mm -hmm. and that, i think the answer is she knows most of it Weezy needs to know that there's something beautiful waiting for her. You know, she, she, she doesn't necessarily know what it is. She may know everything else that's going on, but I don't know that Weezy knows what's It's so what's funny. Next. That's uh, prior to getting onto the call here. That was the scene I was discussing uh, with the team here. And, and so I was looking at it mm -hmm. and you're right. It says, it, is it beautiful? Oh yes, it is. It's open. It's wide open. So that, yeah. Of course, that would appeal, that language would appeal to Wheezy, wide open space where she's not confined by taking care of her mother or taking care of this other person, like all right. that possibility. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it's not just a story uh, about June. It's like they're walking side by side together. Yes, that one character has that omnipresent perspective, but yet she doesn't know everything, which keeps it really, really interesting because if she knew everything, then... Right. You know, yeah. Um, it's funny, too, because I even asked... Uh, I was like, oh, she sees her friend from the third grade <laughs> in that image, and I, uh, and I uh, wondered about uh, that as well, that just that little add to that, that imagery. I thought that that was nice. That red-headed girl driving that car really fast. On a sitting on a stack of encyclopedias, it's a really comical image. Uh -huh. I wanted it to be something that would make June not just stop and pause, but maybe be delighted. Like this is comical. This is funny. How is a how is a third grader driving a car and the car's yellow and she's on a stack of encyclopedias? And I wanted June to be laughing. And when we, when Wheezy hears that June is laughing, she actually comments on it. She says, "You're laughing." And when was the last time June ever laughed? Like, Wheezy doesn't say that, but we we can see in the course of the play, if we really stop for a moment, like, oh, sh June's not a laugher, is she? She's too deep in it. She doesn't remember what that is. Laughter, just abandoned with laughter. like Which, which is odd because she's so funny. She's a funny character. She cracks. Oh, she's, so, she's sardonic. She's busy making everyone else laugh, but yeah. she doesn't laugh. Well, I think it's a little naughty, too, because, I mean, I remember actually stealing the car 
um, that, at, at 12 oh, yeah. years old and driving it around the neighborhood with all my girlfriends, you know? And so I Pain. just put myself right in that car. I was like, oh, I know. And I your didn't. pet goat, ironically, too, which is <laughs> yeah. weird. You have no idea. No. <laughs> yeah, it's a little naughty. It's a little dangerous. And while she's been through this harrowing situation, which is dangerous, she doesn't uh, attempt to do anything dangerous anymore because she's been through that experience. So that image is it's it's a fascinating image that you put there yeah thank you what is audrey what is the southern voice i hear this from a number of of playwrights in the south or writers in general from the south who who profess to writing with the southern voice we're in las vegas i was born in las vegas a a sort of nondescript uh regionally barren it's culturally barren kind of I don't know that we yeah. have an accent or a culture. Or, so the Southern voice I find very appealing, even if I don't really know what it is or how to define it. My first two loves um, as a young actor in Alabama were um, Tennessee Williams and Beth Henley. Of course. And I yeah. feel like in any one of my plays, you're probably going to get some of both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also maybe a heaping helping of of, you know, Mike Nichols or, or, or Altman or, um, like I, you know, my favorite movie is broadcast news. And so, um, and that may be in big part because of Holly Hunter, who I've adored for years, but, um, I just find that not only is, is Alabama where I was raised and these stories, um, feel very comfortable writing in that vernacular. Um, but also that there's a musicality um, to it uh, that I treat almost with a a reverence and an irreverence Mm -hmm. um, because I like to use the musicality of the Southern voice, but in a way that might be um, a bit unusual. Uh, Peter Marks once remarked that one of my characters in the Gulf sounded like she'd swallowed a dictionary. The wrong, or was it he? He said <laughs> he didn't say. It. I think someone else said that. But that, but he he felt like that the character of Betty, who's kind of you know she's trying to get smart. She wants to go to school and she's reading books, and so she sometimes gets the word wrong, but yeah. she sometimes gets the word gloriously right, and <clears throat> so. That's what I like about um, ha- having the controls there allows me to create these characters that I think Peter Marks called Betty a contradiction, uh, a, a, a confused. I said, I said, no, no, Peter, she's not confused. She's a contradiction. And I think the same could be said for June in, in this world of Alabaster. Um, but that's only because we look at characters who speak in that very um, uh, that that sort of gritty working class, specifically, um, I'll just say Alabama, but it's not specific. It's not just Alabama. Um, that vernacular um, as less than, as less educated than. Um, but that well, a lot of that has to do with the accent. Which you know, I'm surprised. I was expecting to hear an accent from you, Audrey, when we dialed oh, up. Oh, 
Well, if my dramaturg was here, um, and I, I almost wanted her to, she's, she couldn't make it, but I was going to ask her to join us. She still has her accent. Yeah. Um, but there's, so there's this sort of assumption that when you, when you have, when you speak in that syntax or that dialect, that you don't, that you're uneducated, that you're, you, you, you're, not worldly, but June is the classic example of a Cephali protagonist who is complete contradiction to what you would expect. She, first of all, she speaks very eloquently when she wants to, and she flips words at will. She does not care. Um, some of it is just her being playful. Some of it is her being sassy. Um, but then she will hit you with something so hard and you're like, oh, I, I thought I knew who I was dealing with. This this is an incredibly bright, smart woman. Oh, she, she's whip smart um, and a little and a little vulgar, which is always attractive. Smart, a little vulgar, yeah. sassy, incredibly um, eloquent when she wants to be um, and just refuses to uh refuses to fit into any category. And I think that that's what I'm trying to do with my characters is sort of dispel this notion that these characters must be one thing or the other. If I don't have creative license to add lyricism and luxuriate in language and take us into this sort of uh, hypnotic world, then I can't achieve what I'm trying to do, which is to sort of create a trance environment where suggestions of higher how do i say this i want the world to know that you talked about the sentence oh it's wide open and i have i wrote a play it's it's actually one you guys might love called the last wide open there's this notion that we only have a few amount of chances like a cat with nine lives in this world right and i and i think when you come to see one of my plays one of the things that i'm trying to get across is that it, it doesn't have to be over. It doesn't have to be this desolate place. Um, and I feel like when I can access the Southern voice in a way that is lyrical and highly distilled, um, I can get the audience and the actors too, everyone in the room, in sort of this suggestive state where I can then convey some some I don't want to say loftier ideas, but some more intentful ideas um, about healing, um, about fortitude, about um, fellowship, about love, about tenderness. That's the other assumption about the Southern voice, though, isn't it? You talked a little bit about the assumption hearing that accent that it's a bit unschooled or buffoonish or what have you. But the other assumption with that accent is a level of down-home, earthy sageness, right? A, a knowledge that somehow is uh, escapes the rest of the world, the rest of the country that's unique somehow, that knowledge to the South in, in these um, oftentimes assumed to be uneducated characters who somehow have a, a wider understanding of the world and of destiny and what have you. Nobody ever calls a Carson McCullers character a contradiction. Nobody ever calls a, a, a Tennessee Williams character a contradiction. I was just thinking that when you mentioned Williams, because I, I teach one of his plays in my class, and um, you know, I read this huge biography on him. We we actually did a production of Glass Menagerie at, at a public fit, and the thing about Tennessee Williams' mother was she was so eloquent and 
very verbose and used a lot of words to get her point across. Uh, and no one, um, when it came to debate, no one was her match, right? And right. Her, her son uh, was a more quiet observer of that um, of that experience, uh, especially socially when he, he got much older. But as you were saying these things, you need, in order to find the depth of your characters, and, and I'm just kind of just taking what you're saying and, and, and reframing it in my own mind, you need more words in order to create that complexity. And so this notion that, uh, um, that people from the South are, are hillbillies and have less words or are less eloquent is actually opposite. We need, you need more words in order to sometimes to express those deeper ideas. You need the, the breadth of language at your disposal, not necessarily more words, there can be no closed doors. There can be no words that are off limits. And also, I'm a big proponent of silence. And so um, there's an audacity component to be willing to go there and let us sit in that silence. Because sometimes that's the only thing that's going to convey the, the depth of what is occurring in this moment. And when you fill it with noise and words nobody cares about, People will tune out. No, I yes, you're exactly right. You need the you need more access to more. I don't. Ideas. I want yes. more access. I don't. I don't want anybody telling me that I can't use any syntax and any word, any any phrasing and whatever I want to, and and I will. I will. You know, um, switch things around uh, because it's more lyrical. For instance, um, Wheezy has a line. She speaks directly to the audience right as she's leaving, and she says, it, she says, it's not not love to, to walk away. Hate me if you need to. I need nothing but a sense of good direction. Now, I have heard actors fix that line. I need nothing but a good sense of direction. Now, I ask you, which one sounds more interesting to you? <laughs> a sense of good direction or a good sense of direction? I think it's the first one. <laughs> what I said. <laughs> Nothing but a sense of good direction. In fact, I had a friend tell me that if I ever fixed that line, he would never speak to me again because it, it's, it just flows better. It's more interesting. It's ironic. It's endearing. It's so many things. It's yes. so funny you bring this up because I was dying to ask you about this. I've I've followed some of your Substack writing, I have to say, and and you've listed the the ten things playwrights wish actors understood. And I'm just going to tell you a quick story before I ask you the, these these questions. But when we do our first readings. Uh, first table read of any play at a, at a public fit, I am notorious for the following speech. I say, actors, please. Read what is written on the page, not what you think is written. A comma is not a period. A period is not a semicolon. If they say cannot instead of can't, I will stop them and I will ask them to read that line again at the first table read because that's the one time they really get to get it the way the playwright intended. And it makes me crazy. And clearly it makes you crazy too. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask spends you, all this time working on it. <laughs> the difference between the word, the right word and almost the right word, the firefly and the fire bug. I, I get the fire and the, or the lightning and the lightning bug. Um, but I wanted to ask you about this. You've, you've in a, in a play, uh, in, in Maytag Virgin, there's a scene between Jack and Lizzie their first sort of date. 
And in that scene, the, the scene sort of moves along. She is on his porch. It's his stack of laundry that's there. And then in, in a moment, she just suddenly starts folding his laundry. She doesn't ask him first. She doesn't. She just starts folding laundry. And you've said that you've seen productions where directors and actors have sort of dismissed that and had him just start folding laundry, which would make me insane because that seems to completely misunderstand the point of that stage direction, hence the point of that scene. This is a long way to go to get to this question, but how do you feel about that? Clearly it makes you crazy because you've mentioned it in in your 10 Things Playwrights Wish Actors Understood. I think they think it's just suggested blocking, Bray. What yeah, they do not understand so frustrating. is that that is a very carefully placed... Um, it's a It's a call and answer to a previous gesture in a previous scene when Jack, and we don't see him do this, but we hear that he did this, cleaned up some clippings, yard clippings, in Lizzie's yard. Yeah. At this point, we begin to understand if he's cleaning up stuff in her yard without her asking, and if she's just kind of uh, breezily folding his laundry because it needs to be folded. It's about intimacy. Have somehow become more than just casual friends in each other's lives. It is unspoken intimacy created by a brilliant playwright. And why the hell would these directors and actors feel free to destroy those they moments? They care of each other. And when you have Jack folding the laundry, the audience <laughs> is like, that's rude. <laughs> and, and it's just a guy folding laundry. They begin to think, oh, oh, I get it now. This guy has a weird laundry fetish. <laughs> or, or they go, why on earth can he not just leave it in the dryer for another couple of hours? Why does he need to fold it right then? And then they begin, well, maybe he's nervous. Okay, fine. Um, but neither of those things is what I... And so what do, you, what do you do as a playwright? You're stuck. Do I go... Listen, all y'all, I said what I said. Lizzie is the one folding. Do I put that in parenthetical? I have to like, tell you, Audrey, that, that whole list How just made, does this go? That whole list <laughs> just made me sad. It just made me sad because I felt like I felt like I've always felt like, at least for that first table read, you know, that we are in service of the playwright and we in service of the play and the play springs forth from the playwright. And it felt like some of a, a lot of those observations from your perspective were actors and directors expecting the playwright to be in service of whatever the fuck they were doing. You know? I feel like if ignore stage directions at your peril. Yeah, it made me sad. Actors and directors, your playwright has spent years crafting every syllable and the, the, the order of the words and the vowel sounds in every sentence. At least I do. Of, okay. yeah, of, of course. Certainly there have been times when an actor has said, did you mean this word? And I'll say, actually, no, I don't know why that's a typo. You know, of course, <laughs> of course we make mistakes. Of course we didn't mean to put certain things. But 99.9, .9, vowels, sentences, stage directions are very intentional. And you're just sitting there with it for the first time thinking that you know better. And what happens is it's a trap. Because yeah. here you go, off on your own, against the, the the advice of the writer who has just told you, okay, what it's supposed to be. Here you go off on your own, and in about three pages, you're going to be so confused. <laughs> because somewhere back there, you missed a road sign <laughs> that said, don't do that, or go here instead. And you went left instead of right, and now the whole scene makes no sense yeah mm -hmm. 
and yeah. you're like contorting yourself trying to figure out how to make this moment make sense when all you really need to do is go back there and check for the sign because mm-hmm. the road ended about 500 yards back i think that's i think that's just a symptom though of how great you are as a player or some playwrights can be that it just seems so easy these words just flow and what does it matter if i say thigh instead of tight it's just these things right. just sort of come out and oh. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a testament, I think, sometimes to good writing, but I, I, it, it's very frustrating. The other thing that you wrote that I love so much were the, the 52 words in a playwright's vocabulary. And there, there were just a couple I wanted to ask you about, if that's okay. Sure. What, sure. The one that struck out to me, and I think this is a, 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 a this will get, I think this will teach me a great deal about you as a playwright, is you substitute the word explosion for climax. And and right. it, it, for for our, our our 101 listeners, the climax of a play is where uh, all the tension is building towards a moment, and then suddenly that climax happens. You don't call it a climax; you call it an explosion. Why the the difference between speaking about the you know the right word? Why the difference in that definition or that label rather? Um. Well, just for our listening audience that may be new to me, I barely went to college. I did go to college for a while, not for playwriting, and I certainly do not. I don't have a degree in playwriting. So I couldn't tell you the Aristotelian. I I don't know all of the classical structures of plays. I don't know all of the words for things. And so I'd find myself in rehearsal rooms with directors using my words for things. And a director would go, what does that mean? <laughs> I'll say that's core. That's core. And they'll go, what is core? That's what I call like, you know, part of the story that, you know, maybe we think about not cutting or, or <laughs> put it someplace else. Like I'm really big on cuts. I love cuts. But sometimes a director may ask you to look at a page, several pages of dialogue, and they'll suggest trim, trimming. But they aren't, um, they, they don't know the script well enough to know that, oh, the, the you know, page three, I, I, that's just mostly fill, you know, and page one, you know, that second section is really kind of core to the central sort of theme mm-hmm. of the story. Uncuttable um, is uncuttable. But, so for explosion, um, to me, the reason I think of it as an explosion is because years ago I read a, a book called Backwards and Forwards, which I know a lot of a lot of us know that wonderful book. Well, it may not necessarily be a playwriting book, but I, I as as a new playwright, looked at it and thought, oh, this is so connected to what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create, you know, um, an interesting um, a, a, an interesting story for the stage, and what this writer is telling me to do is to think is to is to think about um the structure of a scene in terms of action not just somebody said this and somebody said this and somebody said this but action right and so i thought um he's he's saying that if you analyze a script backwards and go well what happened just before that and then before that, and before that, you will quickly begin to understand a scene that you might not understand if you're trying to look at it going forward. You'll see where the you holes are. Back. You'll see where the holes are. See in your, the holes are. Yeah. 
And so I started writing my plays backwards. <laughs> I would think of something interesting, like something's on fire or somebody just pushed somebody out of a boat or, <laughs> um, you know, I go, why did that person push that person out of a boat? Because he was That's on fire, kind of duh. Were, <laughs> so you started with the explosion and you went backwards. <laughs> well, it's, it, I began to think of everything that came before it as a pileup, which is a word some of us use from the acting world, right? Um, um, as a pileup. And then what happens when things pile up and pile up and pile up? I mean, eventually you're going, something's got to give. And I felt like if it didn't, if that moment of give when something finally broke loose didn't feel like an explosion, then I hadn't chosen the correct action just before it. So if you say, well, somebody pushed somebody out of a boat, that feels explosive to me. Mm -hmm. That's big. Mm -hmm. Something must have happened. And I don't mean accidentally pushed them out of a boat. I mean, actually pushed them off of a boat into open ocean water. That's pretty explosive. Mm -hmm. So if I say, well, what comes just before that? Well, it could be that somebody was just joking. Um, it could be... Uh, somebody is trying to kill someone intentionally. Um, it could be um, they want them to learn to swim on their own the hard way. Um, it could be betrayal of some kind, right? And then when I have those options in front of me, I always ask myself, which one of those, first of all, energizes me as a writer? I don't want to write about somebody having to learn to swim. I don't want to write about these other three, but certainly betrayal, which is, which is adjacent to passion, which if this, if somebody's pushing someone out of, out of, out of a boat, if it's a, if it's a, a moment of passion, which sometimes we just lose our heads as human beings and we do something in a moment of passion that we wouldn't do any other time that excited me. And so this would turn into my play, The Gulf, right? And I realized that these two women in the Gulf must be in a relationship because um, only passion, you know, and maybe betrayal would cause that to happen. So to me, that's why I call it, that's an example of why I call it an explosion because that's not necessarily something I would consider the climax. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's an I, explosive moment that I'm It's funny that with. you say, I, I wish I'd had Anne-Marie read that list mm -hmm. uh, because she's ridiculously overeducated, way too much smarts on the girl. And she uses so many of your words with, that they just sort of happen to be the same sort of signposts. Look at this list. Yeah, you'll love it. Well, I think I like you and I would be best friends. I'm convinced. I don't like the word climax either because that uh, suggests that there's only one high point in, in the script. And I think, like, for instance, you mentioned uh, August Osage County. We did August Osage County a few years back. There are many explosive moments, and the high yes. point in the script is actually a pretty subtle moment, and that's when Barb yes. leaves, leaves the house. And that's explosive, but it, it's explosive in a different way. So explosion, the dinner scene is explosive, right? Your uh, her going through her traumatic tornado scene in your play, that is an explosive moment in your play. Uh, and there yes. are many of those in plays, and and those are the we hunger for those moments as audience members. As right. audience I want to give you this and definition. It's to think of it as an explosion in terms of getting to those interesting high torque. That's another word I use: torque, high yes. torque moments, squeezing characters, um, because those are what excite us. Mm -hmm. The climax may be a whisper. Yeah. Okay. And this for is my me, other... that's easier to write separately than these explosions. Sorry. To this, no, this is, this, I'm, I'm interrupting you, but this is my other favorite that I just wanted to give to Anne-Marie. And I, I know what it means. I just think it's just a lovely, it's a lovely word. Throw it at me. 
one of her play in her playwrights vocabulary list is lava lamping. <laughs> and lava lamping, and I've never heard this is it's lovely. I've never heard it described this way. I don't even know what it is. In lava lamping, you devise a little something interesting to bubble up into a scene every now and then. And maybe it's never fully explained, but it's delightful nonetheless because not everything needs an explanation. It can just be lava or whatever you want it to be. And I think that really speaks to you, Emery, because you do that all the time. Oh, yeah. I, I think of them, like the literary expression for that is like a, di- a digression that doesn't get explained. And that happens a lot like in non-realistic plays um, where the lava world... Lava lamping is better. That's yes, a better lava phrase. lamping is much better. <laughs> yes. So I think we'll lava lamp instead of digress. I, I love it. I love uh, it. Texture. You can call it texture. Yeah. I feel like I feel like I, I I've asked you for forty five minutes. Audrey, you've given us so much more than that. I I could not be more grateful. You're, you're, somebody wants to make you some tea. And just like that, <laughs> we've reached the end of season three of Behind the Buzz. I seriously I can't thank Audrey Sefley enough for joining us in what we uh, in doing what we love best, talking about theater. Her ridiculously beautiful play, Alabaster, will close out our ninth season with a stage reading on June 30th and July 1st, as we just mentioned, at the Flamingo Library. Check out our our website for more information. But just because the season is ending doesn't mean the conversation is finished. Subscribing to Behind the Buzz and taking the time to give us a quick review or a one-click rating really helps uh, guide us in putting these dialogues together. And as we stand on the brink of our 10th season, do you believe it? Our 10th season. Uh, we would love for you to let us know what you'd like to see on stage and what you'd like to talk about. You can get a hold of us at behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org. Your comments and suggestions really do help us improve the lineup of productions and conversations that make a public fit work. Please keep in touch. There's so much to talk about. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public theater company. It is directed by Anne-Marie Perreth and me, Joe Kukin, and is recorded, mixed, and edited by the sensational Diane Walton. <laughs>